Hi everyone, and welcome to the Never Too Late with Blake podcast, where you guys, the listeners, will join me on a journey with my guests. My aim with this podcast is to provide practical and useful information and tips to help you all on your self-improvement journey. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Never Too Late podcast. I'm your host, Blake Collier, and on this podcast, I try to find some of the most interesting and knowledgeable guests I can and talk about ways we can all grow and improve as humans. Today's guest is Barry Talman. He's an advocate for men's health. He's been a school biology teacher for nearly 30 years, is currently working for the PGA of Australia as a rules official, and is a cancer survivor. In this episode, I want to focus on the wisdom Barry can share with us as a 68-year-old how his perspective has changed over his life, his passion for men's health, and the importance of relationships to living a fulfilled life. As a fellow Collingwood supporter and Camberwell Grammar graduate, I'm excited to see where Barry and I take this chat today. Welcome to the Never Too Late podcast, Barry. Thanks, Blake. It's uh, it's nice to be here. Um, you can go further than that. Not only did we go to the same school, we were in the same house, and we had the same housemaster some 30 or 40 years apart, which is quite remarkable. And he's still alive today. Wow, Just. that is remarkable. <laughs> he's a poor old bug now. He actually had a huge influence on my life. Um, he 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 had a big influence on me going into teaching, uh, and it became a career for me to go into teaching. So, but I'm sure we'll touch on a bit of that and what I what I got from that later on. Absolutely, yeah. So, what year did you graduate? Ooh, I graduated from uni in 1978. My first posting for to a school was Richmond High School on the banks of the Yarra, now Melbourne Girls College. Um, I did, I think, nine okay. years there. Uh, and then I did two years at Warrandyte High School uh, before I left the government system and went to a private school uh, in the other side of the APS, um, Corfield Grammar. And I worked at Corfield Grammar then for the next 28 years as in, in the one school across two campuses, 14 years in, at... Um, Corfield Campus, 14 years at Wheelers Hill. And that was all as head of biology, is that right? I was doing a variety of jobs in the government system, getting some, getting a lot of experience. Um, in, I went to Corfield Grammar as head of science for the whole school, for all of its campuses. Wow. And that lasted for a while until the principal decided to make the campuses autonomous, and I stayed at Corfield Campus as head of science there through my time there. Um, when it came time for my children to start secondary school, we'd chosen that they'd go to the Wheelers Hill campus and I took the opportunity uh, that came up to move across to Wheelers Hill and I moved from being an academic to a pastoral care role to what's called the head of house we're talking about, which is basically the head of a sub-school where you're responsible for the pastoral care of about 200 students. And I found my calling in that. It's very late in your career that you can say that that career change was instrumental in how I think back. One of the things I would say to my earlier self, if I had the opportunity, was I should have grabbed that much, much earlier. But health issues dictated that my ambitions changed. Um, uh, as as you, you relate as a cancer survivor, while I was at Caulfield campus, not long after I'd got there, about... 30, 28 years ago, I developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and school was wonderful. They supported me tremendously through that time. I was 
I was young then. I was young, young, probably old to you now. I was <laughs> in my mid thirties. I was a, probably a, a bit of a rising star heading for a headmastership or a principalship. And I just walked away from that completely it, because my focus became family and health. Uh, I still tried to do my job to the best of my ability and got a lot out of it. But at that point, um, chasing the, the, the dream changed because I realized that that wasn't the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life was the family that was around me and, and my own health at that stage. Mm. Uh, and so there's one of the things I'd say back to myself as a younger self is hang on, you, you're, you're aiming for the wrong things then. You can find a much more satisfying life without being at the top of the heap. Yeah. And do you think that, I guess if someone doesn't go through something like you went through at the age of, I think you said 35 with that diagnosis, do you think people can still find that, I guess, perspective shift and that, yeah, change in mindset with it all? I think people find that that a number of times during their lives. I mean, I found that shift on retirement as well uh, uh, and chased a dream that I had when I was younger. But I've... I've seen secondary students make that shift. I've seen people in their mid-20s and 30s make that shift. I mean, in the game you're in, there's lots of young guys at 30 years old have got to make some decisions about where their future lies and putting bread on the table versus chasing a dream. And the reality is... Um, They've, they've got to they've got to find how how to make that shift without upsetting their personal life and their personal confidence in themselves, and I think that's really a, a, an important area that that uh, gets neglected. I mean, the common example that's bandied around is what happens to professional AFL footballers when they stop playing football, and these days there's a lot more effort put into working with that. But back when I was a youngster. They were basically left to their own devices, and a lot of them mm. exhibited a lot of problems for that very reason. Yeah, and especially finishing AFL football, well, anywhere from some people only play a few years all the way up to about 30, so you've got so much of your life ahead after that. Society sort of says that, in general, that we should know what we want to do when we finish high school. Like, you should go to uni and... and you should know what you want to study and some people do but I think some people it takes some time to sort of find their path and and even if they go back to university at, at 25 or 30 they might have a better idea of where they want to go with things oh yeah look if I if I look back at my time in in pastoral care let's look at that particularly I would have said that probably only 25 percent of the students who I dealt with at a VCE level had any really firm idea about what they should be doing and where they wanted to go. That gave them a degree of work ethic. Um, the bottom 25% of that group that had absolutely no idea struggled for work ethic. I'm not talking about academic ability. I'm talking about direction and um, application to what they were doing. If you haven't got application to what you're doing, if I mean, if I could have taught application rather than education, I would have been the best teacher in the world um, because that's what kids need. That's what they needed. And that's what that's what you need in your profession. 
that's what I need in what I'm doing. It's about application, not a, not about um, intelligence or or education for that matter. Well, I think of like when I was in high school. I don't think I I might have finished one of the books that we had to read for English or for, at school. And now I'm reading every night different books because I know I'm interested in the things I'm reading and learning about rather than um, I guess as you said, like I wasn't really sure of what. I was really interested in where now the health and wellness space is something I'm I absolutely love learning about so I'm reading all the time and and listening to podcasts and learning about that so it, as you said the application yeah well you're very unusual for two reasons uh one is your reading <laughs> which a lot of people and particularly guys don't do um and secondly you're reading about health which is even mm. a smaller version of what it was I used to teach um, when I was teaching biol, and particularly when I was talking to, to groups of students about their health and their welfare, I used to quote meeting a guy who's now long, long gone, a professor Derek Llewellyn Jones, who was one of the pioneers of public and personal health in England and then in Australia. And he wrote a book in the, um, in the, the mid seventies. I know that sounds ancient history, but it's really important as what it's the foundation it laid. It was called Every Woman and it was a book about women's health. And it was an absolute smash hit in the numbers don't sound big today, but in, in those days it sold over two million copies worldwide. Uh, and it was a huge success. Uh, and it, it started this, the whole, idea that people could look after their own health rather than rely on somebody else to go and do it. And I was very fortunate to meet this bloke uh, at a conference in Canberra uh, before he passed away in 1997. And he confided in me that he'd also written a book called Every Man and that it sold about 2,000 copies worldwide. And that sparked my interest because he had 2 million copies of, the, of a book about women's health selling to women and 2,000 copies of a men's book about men's health. And it really highlighted the problem, some of the problems that exist with men reading, one, reading, and two, thinking about their own health. It seems to me, talking about men's health, because that's one of the topics we want to talk about, that a lot of men, particularly young men, don't think about their health until they hit a crisis. Uh, and mm. then when they hit a crisis, whether it being a physical crisis through something really untoward happening, or it being a mental crisis through stress, anxiety, or something else not working for them, that they suddenly have to come to terms with, I need to think about my health. And of course, I was no different. That's what happened to me when I developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, that came out of left field. I was a healthy bloke just jogging along, flogging myself, mm. trying to do my job. And out of left field came a disease that I had no comprehension how to deal with. That It must come as such a shock when you get a diagnosis like that. How did you deal with with what came after that? Yeah, well, 30 years ago, it was um, a diagnosis of cancer was pretty scary. It still is today, oh, yeah. as I'll mention shortly. Uh, it still is today. Um I was very fortunate. It caused massive panic in my family. I must admit, my wife was beside herself. We had two young kids. Um, 
fortunately for me, my brother is a, is a medico, um, is a doctor. And it gave me access to a very good support network. And it also gave me access to some of the best specialists in Melbourne immediately. And very fortunately for me, I got one of the really good ones, Paul Coglin at Box Hill of all places. And he, he looked at me and said, no, we can, we can cure this. We can fix this. And, uh, 30 years later, here I'm sitting here saying, yeah, good on you, Paul. We did. And I've run into him recently and we, we'd still laugh about it. Uh, he then said, what are you there for? What are you in here for? And I said, I'm having a PET scan because I've got prostate cancer. And he just looked at me and has gone, oh, no. He said, that's a bug. That, that really is a bugger of a disease. But I was much better prepared to deal with it this time than I was the first time. But I had a good support network. And through all of this, having that good support network, someone with you all the, all the way through, particularly my wife, Annegret, is, is, is huge and my, my family around me. The second time around, I'm really happy because both of my children are in the medical game and so I've had my brother, my son, and my daughter all there to really support me. And that's made life much, much easier. Yeah, that's great. And I think it would give you such a, I guess, a clearer picture of the direction and a better sense of hope hearing, I guess, your kids and your brother telling you, oh, it's going to be okay. You can get through it. That must help a lot. Oh, yeah, it, it, it certainly does. Um, and it gives you one of the, the hardest things people face, and and now here's here's another go back and give yourself advice. One of the mm. most difficult things people face is making good decisions about which way to go with things, and having a good support network gives you advice that you can then make good decisions about. I think people who have difficulties with with things often have difficulties because they make bad decisions, sometimes because they're given really bad advice. Yeah, and sometimes that support network you get, I guess, sometimes you don't see what's going on from the inside, where if you have those people around you seeing, picking up on things that you're not, it can make such a big difference. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, I've been living with prostate now for four, four and a half years, and if I didn't have the support network I've got, I'd be a bumbling mess. Um, mm. two years ago, we had a situation where we had to make some decisions about which, which line of next level treatment to go down. And I got good advice again. I got good advice to start with as to who to go and see. I mean, excellent advice. And then yeah. when things started to flare again, I got really good advice about who to go and see. And I'm touching wood in front of me. Um, that's all really working very, very well at the moment. So I, it was it was some good decision making based on good advice and based on tremendous support. That's great. Say, so if you look back to when you were 30, how has your mindset changed from then till to now, being a 68 year old? Oh, my mindset's completely different. I've got a completely different set of values. When I was 30, I was really ambitious. And I was really chasing, you know, the top job. I wanted to be principal of a big private school if I could manage it. I decided in my early 20s to forsake my academic career at university. Um, I was given the opportunity to go to Anglesey in Wales to do a PhD, and I turned it down. 
and decided to go and teach in the education department. So I made a, 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 an absolute decision that I was going to be a career teacher, based very much on some of the things I'd experienced with two teachers, Ian Mason and uh, my biology teacher, Cyril Segmund, who was probably after your, before your time at, at Camp Wall, but was quite a legend in his own right. And I was, I was chasing it. I'd, I'd, I'd done my nine years in the department. I'd got my experience doing a lot of different jobs, including sports secretary for, for a sports region. Um, I was heavily involved in sport. I was heavily involved in the school. I was heavily involved in curriculum development. So I, when the chance came up for a senior job in the private school, I took the opportunity because I knew what I was chasing. My view of this now is I really didn't need to do all of that. I could have, I could have fulfilled my life just as well by being a bit steadier. Um, it wouldn't have changed the outcomes, um, in that it wouldn't have stopped me getting lymphoma. It wouldn't have stopped me getting prostate cancer, but it might have been a bit smoother along the way if I had <laughs> not been so focused on that. Uh, I don't think my family ever suffered by me being that focused because by the time I'd, they were very young and by the time we'd, um, had the first bout of cancer, things had started to really change. And I think they benefited from that actually. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like often when you talk to someone of an older generation, they say that they remember the times most with family and friends rather than running themselves into the ground with work. And they say that if they had their time again, like you've just been saying, you'd do things maybe a little bit differently, but I guess that's perspective and you have to live through that to, to realize it. Yeah, I think, I think you've got to live through some of it. Um, the question is probably how quickly you learn, how quickly you say, hang on a second, is it really worth beating myself up over this or is there an avenue that I can go that I'm really going to enjoy? And I must admit, it's an interesting one because I look at both my kids at the moment who are pretty high flyers. Um, they've been high flyers in sport. They've been high flyers in their work. And they're both chasing, chasing the dream a fair bit. But my advice to them is, yeah, go for the top, but, but be gentle about it. And by all means, have, have a shot at it. And if you get to the, if you want to be at the top, you, you've got to have a shot at it. Um, I mean, that's what I notice about golf, um, particularly is if you're not focused and don't want to have a, don't have a real crack at it, you're not going to go anywhere. Uh, because there's mm. so much competition and so much quality out there uh, of players, but but at the same time, keep it in perspective. It's it's a job or it's a game. It's not your life. You you work for a living. You don't live for working. If you get yourself to mm. the stage where you live for working, something's really wrong, and you need to you need to back off a bit and have a really good think about it. No, I really like that. That's a, that's a great line. Uh, what was your drive and passion for teaching? Did that when did that come about? Oh look, I just during my uni days, um, I did I did science at, at Melbourne, and then I did science honours at Melbourne. And during that time, I started to do some teaching, as you do as a as a grad student. And I found that I really enjoyed it for a start. Um, probably enjoyed it more than the research. That I was doing, uh, and and so it, it sort of kindled a, a thing, and then I then I 
I knew what was involved in doing a PhD, which is a degree in frustration uh, and a lot of hard work, and it meant transplanting to Europe to do it. And I've gone, no, no, I think I like teaching. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I went into teaching at Richmond High. Richmond High then in those days was a very different school to anything that is today. Um, it was a high migrant school. When I started there, it had about a 70% Greek migrant population. By the time I finished there eight or nine years later, it had a 70% uh, Vietnamese boat people population. It was in the time of, of the people arriving in the boats. We had kids coming in who had no education whatsoever. It was quite a, an experience. And I found I really loved it. But what I found that I loved most of all was working with senior students. I'm not real... I never really got my kicks teaching Year 7 science, I've got to tell you, <laughs> or Year 9 science, yeah. for that matter. In fact, I found working with Year 9s a bit of a pain. But working with Year 10s who were starting to switch on and working with Year 11s and 12s who were really going to switch on, there was a chance to have direct influence on people's lives. Mm. And I guess that for you, that's so rewarding seeing year 10, 11, 12 students, the impact you're having on them, both for their science, but then on their lives as well. Yeah, it is. And what's also rewarding is an old, as an old cod retired codger is the number of students who remain in contact with me, who write to me on mm -hmm. Facebook or catch up for coffee uh, and come to me for a reference. I had a request only last week from a student for a reference. Now, that's, what, nine years since I retired or eight years since I retired, and I've got a student asking me for a per personal reference. In fact, without identifying that student, I got them their current job, um, and I'm really proud of that, and I'm really proud of what that yeah. kid did uh, and how they went about it, and, and they love their job, and they've then gone back to school again after that and are now studying and are applying for for more uh, new, uh, different types of jobs. I don't want to do, say too much in case they happen and I identify them. <laughs> but um, lovely person, really good character. But, yeah, I, I got a huge amount of fulfilment about, about seeing where kids went and what they did. And I should say here too that it wasn't about the really high flyers. Now, I know, because I've looked at it, that probably 5% to 10% of the students I taught over the last 10 years did medicine, and which is quite an interesting level of, of success there. But I don't measure that success. I measure the success as the kid who did VC biology and was staring at getting 20, who got 29. That's where the real successes were. And as a pastoral care leader, that's where the real successes were, the kids who were just really struggling and, and getting them through and getting them into tertiary education. We had a young man who faced all sorts of intellectual difficulties and personal difficulties, and um, he he got through. He got through his year 12 um, extraordinarily, and he, he went, went off to TAFE, and he's now working, I believe, in the um, the catering type industry in in that sort of area, and very fulfilled with it. And I do remember 
as you would know, these schools give all sorts of awards at speech night. And there was a, an award for students who had overcome adversity. And I, I nominated this kid for this award. Um, and it was duly given by the, by the powers that be as it should have been. And when his name was read out, the entire auditorium, the whole school rose as one and applauded this kid. And it'll be a moment he'll never forget for the rest of his life. And that was, mm. that was my greatest success. It really yeah, was that's amazing. That kid. I get quite emotional about it. Yeah. Oh, it's, it sounds like it would have been an emotional time. I think hearing you talk about your teaching days and the impact you've had on some people is incredible. If they're coming back eight plus years for references and to catch up for coffees, it, it shows it's not just about what you were teaching in terms of the actual facts and, and the book work, but, but how you led as a person and gave them direction and purpose, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I went across to, to Wheelers Hill to lead one of the houses with a very uh, strong conviction of establishing a culture for a house that was for a group that was struggling. And I was very fortunate that I had a very smart house captain in my second year in, in, in charge who came up with a slogan, which was very smart. I was, I was head of Holmes House, which is named after Angus Holmes, who actually was the principal who appointed me to the school. And this kid borrowed from a common phrase of home is where the heart is to Holmes is where the heart is and oh, made a good. banner for it. Now, I was back at the school earlier this year because I was supervising some exams and that house still has that now as their permanent slogan. And, and I wow. mean, that's, I was, I was head of house there for 10 or 11 years. So that's 20 years now that that, that house is, that's their slogan. That's staying with it. And, and I was really proud because that was the, the culture that, that I wanted to develop for that group of people so that those kids cared for and supported each other. And that was really shown how the kids developed that culture by the way they supported that student. Um, and they did support him. They supported him all the way through secondary school. And so they were, they were overjoyed when the right person got the award. So yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's a partly having a vision and then it's having a bit of strength to drive it, I suppose. And that, that there's, there's a, a thing back to myself where if I was going to go back and say something to my younger self, I'd pat myself on the back for that one and say, the, the, you did really well by having vision and persistence in keeping going to achieve that vision and then and doing the right things and seeking the right advice to get that vision where you wanted it to be. Yeah, that that's very good. I mean, I guess if we jump back to the men's health side of things, how... How did you deal, and I guess how are you dealing now with the ups and downs with your diagnoses and and then the other things that have gone on in your life? How have you dealt with the ups and downs? Yeah, the um, the prostate cancer came as a bit of a shock. Now this is where the this is where the shout out to men's health really occurs because people think only old blokes get prostate cancer, but the reality is that's not true. Whilst it's really rare in anyone your age, 
once you get in your mid to your thirties to mid thirties, um, it starts to stick its head up. And once you go past 40, it really sticks its head up and you've got to start to be aware of it. And to be aware of it, you don't have to be alarmed. You just have to be alert. So this is what I'm saying about all issues about men's health is be alert to what's going on with your health. And if you think something's going on with your health, then do something about it. Even if it's going and asking your GP, I think I've got this or I've got that, or how about I get a skin check to make sure I don't have melanomas or or small things like that, particularly in the Australian environment. Those sorts of things then start a conversation between you and your GP about your health. And as an ongoing thing, that can only be a good thing. Now, in my case, I was going along fine. Everything was going fine. I got over my lymphoma. Everything was great. And I had some sort of a little bit of a symptom, um, urinary issue. And I presented to my GP and he did what they call a PSA test, prostate specific antigen test, which is testing for this and this marker that flows around in your blood. And he said, um, look, I think you really should go and see a urologist about it. Just wanted to take a quick break and say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and subscribe, follow and rate the podcast so I can continue to make content that you enjoy and can all stay up to date. Connect with my Instagram page, Never Too Late Podcast, and pass this on to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from listening. Thank you for all your support. I really appreciate it. Now, back to the episode. I've been told my PSA was elevated and I really should get it checked in a month or two. And I was traveling and we went and traveled and I made a mental note of it to get it checked by when I came back from my travels. We had a wedding and then we went over. We were traveling for quite a period of time. So this was in March. In August, I went and got it checked and it had taken off. And so I immediately, I immediately went to a urologist and he started an investigation and he just quietly said to me, mate, you've got prostate cancer. And I, I looked at him and said, yeah, I know. Mm. I can tell that too um, by the sort of symptoms I'm having. And we don't need to go into that sort of detail. Uh, I'm pretty certain of that as well. So he said, no, let's do a radical prostatectomy and get it out of there, which I'm glad he did. Uh, knowing what we know now, he probably wouldn't have if he'd known what it, where it was. Okay. Um, and so he... Um, this is a discussion I've had with Andrew. He said, thank God we didn't think it was elsewhere because they might not have taken it out and then you would have been a whole different ball game. So they took it out and started, started the treatments that you start for that sort of thing. That was in October. And by December, the PSA level was kicking up again. Uh, so he said, no, nah, it's obviously out. Let's do a scan and I'll send you to an oncologist. Here's five people to choose from. So we did our research pick the best one, which was the right choice, uh, and went to him and he did a PET scan and they, I had three tumours in my pelvis the size of golf balls wow. and a tumor, a small tumour in my ribs. So he said, right, tomorrow you're starting chemotherapy. I'm going, oh, great, chemotherapy again. I know what that's like. He said, oh, no, it's much better than you would have had 30 years ago. <laughs> Absolute rubbish. <laughs> um, it was... 
just the same. Just as bad. 30 years ago. Uh, Just as bad. Um, So I had six bouts of chemotherapy, six goes over six months. One bout, one trip to hospital because I developed a fever, which you've got to really watch for when you're on chemo because your immune system is so low. And at the end of that, he said, well, two of the tumours in your pelvis have gone completely. One of them is down to the size of a pea. And we can't really see much about your ribs. And I said, well, I've broken ribs over the years a number of times playing hockey and football and doing other stupid things and surfing. He said, well, they they probably just flare-ups. We won't worry too much about your ribs, but we will worry about your pelvis. So here's some medic. Here's a drug to take, and we'll put you on. The worst part of it is they put you on a three-monthly horse pellet injection, which is like a pellet into your under your skin, mm-hmm. uh, which is no fun. And they said, and he said, and uh, we'll um, we'll just see how we go. And it drove my PSA well down, and I went along for two years like that. And my PSA started to kick up again. So it was, it was off and marching. My, my prostate cancer, by the way, was they rated on a scale of one to nine of its severity and, and how hard it will, will play up. And, and it's, it's nine. There's no question about that. Oh, wow. So it's a really severe one. If I'd done nothing, uh, I was in real trouble. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't going to take very long to be in real trouble. So. I was then very lucky that my my oncologist is a principal researcher at Peter Mac in a trial of a drug out of America for Pfizer. And he said, look, I want to get you tested for a gene malfunction because if you've got the gene malfunction, you'll be eligible to go on this trial, which is worth about $150,000 a year in drugs. And it turns out I do have this gene mutation called a CHECK2 mutation which is really interesting to me because I know exactly what they're talking about. Um, I've got a mutation in the repair mechanism in my DNA. And normally when you get cancer, your normally your cells die after a certain amount of time and they're replaced by new cells. It's called apoptosis, nat- natural cell death. Yeah. When you get cancer, the cell loses the ability to die. And so they just keep growing. And this CHECK2 mutation means that it stops the cell from recognising it's time to die and keeps on living. Mm. The trial is to see whether this drug could interfere with that, that mutation and and let the cells die there in their natural course. I've been on that now for 70-something weeks. I think it's 70-something weeks of that trial, which is every morning, medication. And my PSA has gone from 1.54 to 0.02, which is almost unmeasurable. Wow. So touch a bit of wood in front of me. We're yeah. pretty pleased with that. That's very uh, good. The side effects, if you see me looking wonky on the course, uh, the side effects in the morning can be pretty ordinary. It can, can knock you around if you don't have the food and that with it when you take your medication, but you've got to do it every morning. And you've got a computer and you've got to log in and say, tell them what you've done and everything like that. But I mean, it's quite been quite a journey. Emotionally, it's tough going. There's no question about that. Um, but you, I mean, this is one of the things I suppose as an older person you learn is resilience. And, and I go into Peter Mac, I, to start with, I was going into Peter Mac every three weeks. I'm now going in every eight to 12 weeks, depending on the schedule. Um, 
And I see, a, and every time I walk in that door, my first thought is, gee, I reckon everybody else in here is worse off than me. Um, it's pretty sobering to go into Peter Mac and see all the people there and the number of people who are sick. So men need to be aware of their health. They need to be checking it. I'm not sure. How, how often? I, how often should we be, or how often should males be checking this sort of stuff? Once you turn forty, you should be checking your PSA every two years. And what you're not looking at is the level of PSA. You're looking at the change in the PSA. So your PSA could be level X under normal conditions, and different people have different PSA levels. But if your level suddenly goes to two or three X, you know you've got a problem. Mm. And then you need to get it checked out. It's, it's, it's a matter about not, it's a matter about ign- not ignoring your health. It's, it's not a matter about being alarmed about your health. It's a matter of just being alert to what's going on. And being proactive. Uh, people with your it as age, well. being, being proactive. I mean, if you want to operate in your game at the level you want to, you've got to keep your health at a premium. So you've got to, you've got to, eat the right foods, do the right exercises, get the right sleep. If you don't get the right sleep, you're going to give your, drive yourself down an anxiety road uh, because you'll get tired and really stressed, and that leads to anxiety issues. Later on, the issues become physical uh, as you get older, uh, and you've got to, you just got to be really, you've got to be aware and thinking about it and thinking what, not, not, not to stupid lengths, not to, I need to still at 50 years old be able to run ultra marathons or anything like that. I've just got to be healthy and I've got to continue to be healthy and I've got to have the drive to be healthy. Yeah, that's very important. And what and what you were saying about before with the books, I guess men sort of feel like their health is, I guess sometimes it's on the side and we're a bit invincible or we think we are sometimes when we've got to be on top of those things and, and always trying to tick away at, at doing the best we can. Well, you, you're talking about two two things there that are absolutely the issue. One is the immortality of youth, right? That that people, if I I don't mean to lump everyone in, but people your <laughs> age don't see their own mortality until they get later on in life, and then they don't see that they're not invincible unless they get an illness. Mm. In which case, that's what I was saying at the very start about unless they get a health crisis, whether it's a mental health crisis or a, a physical health issue, they they don't they really don't see that. And it's it's more saying to people, well, just just keep an eye on things, keep an eye on your skin checks, for example, particularly living in Australia, and particularly if you play golf because you're out in the sun the whole time. There'd be nobody more likely to get skin cancers than golf players mm. when you're out there seven days a week or six days a week for for five or six hours a day in the sun. Uh, be proactive. Wear wear arm guards. Wear wear really good um, sun creams. Yeah, uh, but I, but also get skin checks. Yeah, I think the thing that the common thing between I guess what you've been saying and then the other episodes and guests i've had on this podcast is having a good sense of awareness no matter what you're doing you've got to be aware of what's going on around you and have the right tools to to keep growing with that well the the whole issue about growing is really important is that 
But to keep growing, you've got to have the attitude that I want to keep growing. In other words, I haven't learnt it all. I haven't done it all. I haven't seen it all. And certainly I don't know it all. In, in my game, rules side of things, I always tell people there are two types of rules officials, those that just made a mistake and those that are about to. <laughs> and if you're not, if you don't believe you're one of those, you shouldn't be in the game. It's as simple as that. So that's illustrated for me in that I knew before I retired that the critical issue for me in retirement would be to reinvent myself. I couldn't retire. I retired relatively early to retire at 60. But for teaching, some people decide to go on till they're 65. And I, I said, no, I'm going to go out at the top with a very clear view that I needed to reinvent myself. Otherwise, yeah, I wasn't going to be one who sat at home and watched, I watched TV. For example, I'm, I'm, I've been retired for eight years. I never watch TV during the day unless it's a sporting event that I particularly want to watch because that's when it's on. And in fact, we, we really limit our TV watching. That's good. How have you reinvented yourself then? Well, that's where, that's where the, the golf side of things come in. I mean, I've been doing golf rules for 25 years. We didn't want to go down this path too much. I've been doing golf rules for 25 years as a volunteer. And I was determined to build that beyond that and really do as much golf volunteer, volunteer rules work as I could or, or tournament work as I could. I, over that time, I developed a, a little bit of a relationship with the PGA. And then once I stopped working, I started to be able, fortunately through Andrew Langford Jones and Graham Scott, to develop a stronger relationship with the PGA. And that let me develop my rules side of things, my, my refereeing side of things at, at a professional tournament level. And I've done a lot of the, um, the amateur stuff. I think I've just about refereed every amateur event there is. Yeah. Um, in, in, certainly in Victoria and at an Australian level. And then I've, um, proceeded to, to sort of doing the tour pretty well full-time basis. The only events I, I don't think I'm going to, I'm not going to Queensland for the two Queensland events and that's fine. I'm quite happy not to go to Queensland in, in late November, early December. You know, you do need a bit of a break. Um, you're happy to play six every, you know, 15 weeks in a row. I, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's good how you've been able to find that, I guess, passion and drive to do something when you have retired. Um, even when we were chatting before you, I wanted to touch on, you said you found it's your birthday in two days and you said, that you find the prospect of turning 69 quite scary. What's What What do you find scary about that? Oh, well, I think uh, the danger is, the danger is that people look at people who are 69 and say, yeah, they're on the verge of senility. They're, they're old. They're going to about to be 70. They're going to be really old. Um, people your age look at people my age, if they know their age, and say, they are really old, right? that old codger over there. And it's really important to me that you and, and your colleagues, and I think you and your colleagues, well, I'm assuming, here, here we go, I'll put myself <laughs> out there. I'm assuming that you and David and Cameron and people like that don't see me as that old. No. Because they see a really open person who chats to them and talks to them and, and works with them. And so there's the key. The key is 
because I've reinvented myself and because I've got the drive and the passion to do what I'm doing, hopefully I've earned the respect of the players where they're looking at me as the referee, not me as an old bloke sitting in a cart telling them what to do. Because mm. the minute they start looking at me as an old bloke sitting in a cart telling them what to do, I won't be able to do my job properly because I don't want to listen to me. They go, that's stupid, old bloke. What would he know? Yeah, it, it's the respect piece and, and how you're, as you said, reinventing yourself and the passion you can see coming through and you, your will to want to help people. It, it's it's amazing. Yeah, well, you, you, you earn your respect. You can't, you don't, you're not going to get given it on a, no. on a plate. In that sense, you, you've got to earn it and, and you earn it by the way you interact with the players and the way you encourage players. And sometimes you've got to give penalties. And, mm. and that's, that's just life. And, but it's the way you do it that's the critical issue. Cause the player knows they've got a penalty coming. You don't need to rub it in. Yeah. It's just the, in the probably delivery. Know the penalty before you got there. <laughs> yeah. It's, the, it's all in the delivery. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that was the same. That's why I felt I was so successful at school. It was all in the delivery. I mean, I had some terrible moments with students at school where, you know, students had to be suspended or students had done the wrong thing, but it's in the delivery. And those mm. students res- respect that delivery, whereas if you're wishy-washy about it and, oh, I'm not sure about this one, you're dead in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've had a good chat so far. Maybe we, we uh, finish it up. And one thing I'd like you to sort of finish on is just one point or or one thing that you think people could focus on to help their self-improvement journey. I think the most important thing is to be honest and true if, if you're not honest and and true to people and if you don't show the right respect to people then you're sunk because uh, you're never going to get it back and and to my mind honesty and decency are the most important things in life if, if, if I look at my two children what I, I I used this in my retirement speech if I may say it yeah I, I, I find more abhorrent but there's a movie called Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan. And the guy that they save, Private Ryan, is filmed in the, in the film, kneeling at the grave of the soldier who, who went to extraordinary lengths to save his life. And his comment was, I hope I've been a good man. And it really encapsulated for me what people need to be. They need to be good people. They need to be good, honest people. And, and, I, and I look at my kids and say to my kids the same thing. And I said to my kids at school, because I regarded them as my kids at school, the same thing. Be good people. And I say it to you guys too. You yeah. know that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Be good people. You can be golfers, but you've got to be a good person. I mean, there's some pro golfers floating around who you know are not particularly good people. Mm. I could, whoops, we're going to get in trouble. Please edit, please edit that one out. Um, <laughs> You know exactly what I mean. But I think uh, that's in every industry as well. Oh, I think so. I think absolutely. There's no question about that. Yeah, but that's a great way to finish. I think if we can all do our best, be good people, be honest, respectful, and, and always look out for yeah. others, then we're all going to be in a good spot and society's going to be great from that. Absolutely. So. Nah, that's very good. No well, doubt about it. It was a privilege to have you on, Barry. Um, thanks so much for all your wisdom. No, it's and, a privilege for me to be on. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So um, 
I hope everyone enjoys listening. I'm sure they will. Yeah, I, I don't know that a lot of I don't know that you'll get a great audience with me on it, but anyway. <laughs> no, I'm sure they no will. Worries. Well, thanks so much, Barry. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Anytime. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice and opinions of guests are their own. If you have any questions regarding your health, be sure to seek professional medical advice.